5 through 11. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge and the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. And this is the word of the Lord. Father, I just ask that you be with us this morning and allow us to hear your voice speaking. Would you penetrate each heart and would you reveal any fortress of sin that we have kept that you would love us to destroy, that we might be truly set free and have victory over sin in our life. Help us all to hear what you have to say and to apply it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, an apostle Paul begins in chapters 1 and 2 about foundational truths about Christ's deity, his supremacy, about the sufficiency of Christ and about the completeness of our salvation. But he moves now in chapter 3 to some very practical things, and actually there are commands. Uh, Pastor Larry covered two of them last week, and it really, this matter of living and overcoming victorious life over sin is really something that Paul says in verses 1 and 2 of Colossians 3 starts in our heads and our hearts. We must have our affections set on Christ. We must have our hearts set on Christ and our minds set on Christ. If we don't have this first, everything else is just willpower. We're trying to live the life on human strength and desire. Well, that won't cut it. In fact, Paul even tells us that if we transform our affections more and more towards Christ, even having the right affections will not be enough. Because he goes on in verse 5 and says, therefore, do these things to ensure your victory. Does anybody ever thought they wanted to do the right thing but ended up doing the wrong thing? They thought they desired to do the right thing and ended up doing something totally different? Paul's saying that's the reality here. Just wanting to do right is great, but you need to do something else. There's something more that God is asking us to do, and it's specially related to this matter of sin. So what I want to begin with this morning is put this in context. Why is Paul, again, belaboring this point about why do we need to put sin to death? I thought we already killed sin. Christ won. He's got the victory, right? He defeated sin at the cross. Why are we still in this battle? So that's the first thing we want to talk about is understanding what this battle is and why we're still in it. See, I think there's a really incredible part here. We read before that Christ died and we died in him. We were buried with him. We were raised with him. And in fact, it says in the verse that uh, Pastor Larry read last week from Romans chapter 6, 
verses 1 and 2, it says we even died to sin. I mean, it says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So the question I would ask right off the bat is, well, if we put our faith in Christ, we have died in Christ, been raised with Christ, we have died with sin, what's this battle we're still in? Why are we still fighting this thing that's dead? Well, I think Jesus taught something, and we learned last week in, in Colossians chapter 2, that he defeated our sin, the power of our sin nature. It no longer reigns. It no longer rules. It no longer it keeps us as its slaves. But you know, we might ask ourselves, I'm still wrestling with sin. I, I still got these desires. Why are they still lingering? Uh, I still want to do some things wrong. Why do, I, why do I want to punch that guy instead of love him? Why is that? Am I broken? Uh, am I not a Christian? Maybe I don't know Jesus. Can't I just defeat this thing called sin once and for all, put it to bed, and I can go on with my life? No, you can't. That's not the power. The power of sin that the old man was broken, and its, and it's power to keep us at slaves has been broken. The battle's completely won, true. But we must realize that the nature that God has given us his spirit that he gave us lives in this body of flesh that we've inherited from Adam. And according to Galatians 5.17, Paul gives us insight on the nature of this conflict. He says this, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. And according to Romans 6, 12, it says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Did you know sin is not passive? Sin wants to reign in your life. Now, it's been dethroned. It's a defeated enemy, but it hasn't gone to wait in the car. It wants to rule. It wants to be in charge. It wants to be on the throne of your life. And I think a good example of this that we can apply might come from uh, the battles of World War II. The historians tell us that the Battle of D-Day was so decisive and important that it actually determined the victory of the war in Europe. That because of D-Day and the battle's victory that we achieved there, it was all but done. The only thing that happened between June of 44 and May of 45 at the end of the war was the mop-up operations, the clean-up operations, because the battle was really already decided. This is how it is, I think, in our Christian life. I, I think Jesus has won the battle. He, they are defeated foes. Sin and death are defeated foes. But foes, they still remain. Do you understand that? They are still our foes. They were forced to give up rulership, but they haven't given up the fight. In fact, does Satan know he's a defeated enemy? You bet he does. Romans 12, 12 tells us that. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows his time is short. Does that make him give up? No, he redoubles his efforts. 
He says, I'm going to take more with me. I'm going to work harder. Sin in the same way has been conquered and forever in its power. His back has been broken, but it hasn't gone away. Sin can no longer reign, but it remains. Okay, now death. Has death been conquered? We all have new life in Christ, right? Death is, is a conquered foe. Has, is death still the experience of mankind on earth? Unfortunately, yes. And death will reign even on earth until one thing happens. Christ returns, we get new bodies, and the reign of death is over forever. In fact, according to Revelation 20, 14, that's a beautiful verse, death itself will be removed from our presence and cast into hell forever, never to bother us again. You know that? You will have a life forever that will never be bothered by death. No goodbyes anymore. Well, when we get this new body that will never die, do you know that that is the end of sin as well? And you'll never even want to sin again. Not only can't you sin again, you won't even want to. I would love that to be right now. Because I have to say there are days I, don't want, I still want to sin. Maybe it's different kinds of sins than I used to commit, but I don't want to love like I should. I don't want to give up and sacrifice like God wants me to. I want to be comfy. I want to stay at home in my recliner instead of serve. What's that? Sin is trying to get my attention, right? We need to say no. So what is this? We're going to be forever freed from the presence of sin. In fact, the Westminster Confession says this. Because we are being sanctified, there still abideth some remnants of corruption in every part, whence arises a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. See, I believe every Christian, if you're struggling and you're wondering, am I broken? I would almost say rejoice. Because if you feel the struggle, that means there's a spirit of God in you that's wrestling with the flesh. If you feel no struggle, I would worry. You may not be saved because your flesh should not agree with the spirit of God. It should not. Now, we're going to get more and more power to say no to our sinful nature, but the battle will remain until he takes us home. We can never just say it's over. And so what I say now is, if you sense no conflict, seek Christ. If you have conflict, these are the things that Paul says we must do to overcome this conflict. Well, what is God commanding us to do? Well, I have to say first and foremost, based on that last point, no one apart from Christ has the power to do battle with sin. If you're not a believer, these verses were written to believers, to people who had put their faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ for the salvation of our souls, for the forgiveness of our sins. He bore our sin debt on the cross. For those who believe that and trust in him and follow him, these are our instructions. If you don't have those instructions, you have no hope to fight sin. You are its slave and you will not win. If you want hope, seek Jesus, and then we can follow these instructions. Command one, 
amazing. Put to death. So any pacifist in here, you need to kind of put that aside. God is calling you to put something to death. Now you might be a vegetarian. You can't kill that poor little cow or chicken or whatever. God is telling us with this matter of sin, we must be ruthless. You cannot play with your food. It's like a cat that sits there and plays with a mouse. No, we're not called to do that. We're called to put it to death. Now, the first three words, though, put to death, are really one word in the Greek, and it's a pretty unique and severe word, and it actually means put to death. Some of your Bibles might render this, consider yourselves dead to sin. I don't think that's really the best uh, rendering of what Paul was saying. He's saying, no, you personally take the action, put something to death. Kill it. Run it through with your sword. Be brutal. Be merciless. Don't pet it. Kill it. You know, sometimes I think sin, I, Pastor Todd shared this with me, sin is kind of like a stray cat. If you feed the stray cat, you now have a stray cat. And the more stray cats you feed, you'll be like the cat lady, and there'll be this herd of cats behind you wherever you go. And the more that sin you allow to take place in your life that you do not put to death, but you feed, you allow to remain, you're just going to look like the cat lady of sin. And no Christian is supposed to be followed by a herd of cats. You understand me? We are not called to feed sin to tolerate sin, to be patient with sin, to just be nice to sin, we're told to kill it. Now, some of this strikes some of us kind-hearted folks a little tough. I don't kill a fly. We have to kill sin. In fact, it was uh, John Owen that said, if you do not kill sin, it will kill you. We're in a deadly battle. We are in a deadly battle. Well, I have to say, too, what does it really mean to kill sin? Well, it doesn't mean that we're going to be once and for all victorious. Do not look for the singular battle where you have finally won and you can go about your life without worrying about sin. 1 John 1.8 tells us, if we say we have no sin, we lying. You are lying. So if anybody in here tells me I've actually discovered the secret, I've put sin to death once and for all, I don't struggle with it anymore, I'll just tell you you're lying. We all have this problem. In fact, in verse 9 of our same passage, it says don't lie to one another. So don't do that. Don't lie about it. Just acknowledge it. You have it. All of us have this tendency to try to say no to the Savior who has bought us. It won't go away until we have a new body. But again, what does it mean? Well, it doesn't mean to wait it out, to wait for it to transform. Some of us actually sin less today than we used to. But it's not because we've been sanctified. It's not because we put anything to death. We just don't have the energy, the strength, or the ability as we got older to do the same things. God is not saying outweigh sin. Just, just keep hanging in there and pretty soon you'll get too old to sin and it won't matter. This is not what he's instructing. When you're young, when you're virile, when it's a problem, put it to death. Don't play with it. Don't entertain it. Don't condone it. 
Well, but what does it actually mean practically? Well, I think two things practically we should keep in mind. One is this is going to be a daily battle. Sin will not always present itself as sin. Hello, I'm sin. I want you to do the wrong thing. You're just going to have a thought. And you need to test all your thoughts against what? The Word of God. How would you know what sin was? That's what Paul said. How would I even know what sin was if I didn't have the Word? We don't have a good ruler in our own heart. This is the ruler we should all be using. Right here. This is, this is the book. This is the Word of God. This is what tells us what sin even is. So step one is recognizing it and know that your battle with it is going to be every day. Every day. It's going to want to knock on your door and say, uh, take a look at this. No, I shouldn't. Anybody have a cell phone that scrolls up pictures that you really wish didn't scroll up? Now, I know none of us throw our cell phones in the garbage can when that happens. But we should be off that page faster than lightning rather than, is it really that bad? Right? Our battle is going to be every day. The second part of this battle is, it really in its most simplest form is denying rejecting, saying no to the very thought of sin. Jesus said it this way in Luke 9, 23. If any man would come after me, let him first deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. I don't think we're very good at that, denying ourselves, saying no to me. When I want that double burger instead of the single burger, and I know the single burger should be enough, why do I go for the double burger? I just love what I love. And sometimes you don't love the right things. We need to learn to say no to ourselves. When you want to look at the thing you shouldn't look at, when you want to have that relationship you shouldn't have, when you want to do something, you need to recognize it and say no and deny. And you need to be deliberate. You need to be decisive. You need to be ruthless. This, bat, this, this warrior is not going to go away just because you're mean to it. You have to kill it. Now, the other thing, too, here is you have to remember that this is like a, so daily and so normal. When I got married to Diana, I promised that I would be faithful and devoted to only her. And that means that every moment of every day in every situation... I have to reject and run from any desire, any thought, any image that would pull my heart and my affections and my faithfulness away from my wife. I made the decision to do that in a moment, but me executing it will take my entire life till God takes me home. This is the same with the Christian life. We said yes to Christ in a moment. But the battle with sin will remain until he takes us home. Well, another thing, too, is temptation is not sin. Be careful. Don't, don't beat yourself up because you were tempted. Temptation is not sin. Was Jesus tempted? Yes, he was. Did he say yes to temptation? No, he did not. That's the difference. Yielding to temptation is that is being conquered by sin so I think it was uh, Billy Graham said the first look is free you know 
we might even have set the guard around our life. We say, put no, you know, we make no provision for the flesh in our life. And we think we've done that well. But just by walking through this cesspool of a life, you know, images are going to hit your eyeballs that you wish you never saw. Things are going to hit your eardrums you wish you never heard. Now, the question is, what do you do? I mean, that beautiful woman or beautiful man walks right in front of you, and your flesh is screaming, you know, I think I want to look again. That's the battle. That's where it's going to be won or lost. Do you say, no, I cannot do that. That will draw me away from the affection of my wife, or draw me away from my affection of Christ. Or do we say, well, let me just check it out and see if it was really worth it. Uh-uh. You gotta be brutal right at that moment. Otherwise, we're gonna lose the war. See, our flesh might scream in our heads, but it has no power anymore. It's just a noise. God has conquered through Christ the power of sin forever. We now have been given an ability that we would be very delinquent if we did not use. It would be actually insulting to God to not use the remedy that he's provided. And he says, by the way, when this happens, you can say no. And it's almost like telling someone before, I know I never used to be able to fly, but he says I can now, so okay, right? I, and to us, saying no to sin is like asking us to fly. But God says you can, and we must. Well, let's move on. What are the things that he says should be on our list? And by the way, if the sins that you're dealing with are not on the list that Paul has here today, uh, fret not. There are some that's on your list. And you need to use the same tactics as what he's describing here. You must put it to death. Don't tolerate it. Don't pet it. Don't feed it. Don't have a herd of cats. Kill it. Otherwise, our victory becomes marred. Well, this number one on his list was sexual immorality. And the only thing I want to say about this is I think the world around us will define it differently than we do. We are not to use the world's definition of what sexual immorality is. What was immoral in our culture 50 years ago is now almost being promoted. We have one rule of what sexual immorality is, and that's what God says, God-ordained structure, what appropriate sexual behavior is and where it should take place. And he said, sexual behavior is reserved for marriage between men and women, period. That's what he said. So when you, it says sexual immorality, just know what he's saying here is there's no room for that in the believer's life. This may have been your habit, this may have been your past, but it's over. Take off the old clothes. Put this to death because it will destroy you. God has given you the ability to say no. And this is one of some of the things we need to say. We can't use society's rule book, government's rule book of what's right. We need to use God's. The next word was impurity, uncleanness. And this really is kind of the thought life, uncleanness of the mind. And I think this often precedes the actions of physical sexual expression because maybe you don't struggle with physically being immoral, but your mind is a cesspool. 
God says, get rid of it. Jesus said, anyone that looks after a woman lustfully in his heart has already committed adultery with him with her. Do we understand the danger of playing with thoughts in our mind that are not God-centered? Whatever you think about, so such are you. You will end up doing what you let play around in your mind. So when you see thoughts that come up in your mind that are impure, unclean, unholy as God would describe it, what's your response to be? No one else sees? No, God knows. Kill it. Get rid of it. Destroy it. Many of us go wrong at this one step. And I think many marriages have been lost. Many homes have been lost. Many lives have been lost because they've entertained thoughts that were impure that inevitably came out as actions. The next one is lust. And I think we know it's, it's more than just uncurbed sexual desire. It means inordinate affection for anything. Wanting something enough that you're willing to sin to get it or keep it. Do you want something that bad? Is there anything you've been trying to get? Maybe you're trying to get a, a new lease on your new piece of property and they don't think you have enough background for it. So you lie and embellish and... and because you'll do anything to get what you want. Have you ever done something like that? You, you don't want to pay too many taxes, so you'll lie to show what you, to get what you want. I don't want to pay taxes. See, this is the thing. We have to keep that. When you ever sense it, kill it. The last one here, too, is evil desires, which is just a deeper base, and it really means more than just sex. It means devotion to idols or material possessions or renown or self-gratification. Paul telling us these are dangerous. Kill them. The last one, I think, is the most important, is greed. I think it's the most applicable to our culture today. See, greed, we might say, well, I don't see very many greedy people running around like Rockefeller. No, we are self-worshippers. We want more and more and more for me. What is most, a lot of the, I say most, but much of social media is all about me. Look what I'm doing. Look what I'm eating. Look what I'm wearing. Look at the faces I make. Really? What are we trying to say? I'm saying I'm in charge. I'm important. I'm what matters. No. See, this is why Paul likened, I think, greed, the wanting of putting self on the throne of your life and getting more and more for self is idolatry. It's almost like you went home, you erected a statue of yourself and you're bowing down to it because that's what you really are about, you. God says it's idolatry. We need to get rid of it. So if you're a fan of yourself, I would say put that on the altar, kill it. Well, the last thing here in verse 6 is that God says that his wrath is coming. And in fact, according to John 3, 36, it's already here. We may not see his lightning bolt take out people. But do this every day. Make no mistake. God's wrath is coming on all these things. And it's already here on those who do not have Christ. And he's patient not willing, wanting any to perish, 
that all might come to repentance. The only reason we're not seeing lightning bolts, people, is because God is loving and patient. And he wants people to repent and come back. It's not his goal to destroy them. If he wanted to destroy sin, he could have done what he did with Noah. The world's gone. It deserves it. But that's not what he's about. He's about redemption. Command two. Paul gives a second command found in verse eight. And I think it's really important. It says this, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Now these are relational things. And now it's interesting that he says to believers that they should get rid of these things. Why are they even there? Well, we've had an old life, right? We see that in verse 7. But I think it's important to hear the verb that Paul used here to rid yourself of. And the meaning is more than just like we get rid of, we throw it in the trash can. I think it means more like to emphatically shed, to toss off, like you would if a spider or a snake landed on your shoulder in the jungle. Right? You don't go... Well, most of us don't. How would you be if someone came up to you and dumped a bucket of nastiness on you on your shirt? Well, it could be sewage. It could be poison. It could be um, acid. Would you just unbutton your shirt, take it off, fold it up, put it down? No, you'd get rid of that baby. It, poof, I'm getting this off. This is the verb, and this is what Paul's saying we should do with these things. Now, the question is, what do we normally do with these things? Does anybody ever tolerate anger in their life? Any of you have to go to anger management? Uh, what's this world dealing with? Anger. Now, this anger is a little diff different kind of anger because I know that none of the nice people in here have ever been sinfully angry. Uh, but I think what he says this, this first verb, anger, is really the settled, smoldering anger. Someone who's always mad. See, because being angry is not the sin, right? Of course, Ephesians 4 says, in your anger, do not sin. So Jesus was angry, was he not? And, but he did not sin. So there's a way, a place, and a time, and an expression of being angry that God says is acceptable. But that's generally not what we do. We kind of have a little different strategy for anger. Because we generally, we get mad when things happen to us, not when things happen to God's reputation. Jesus got upset when things happened to God. We get upset when things happen to us. Okay, but settled anger. Do you know anybody that's always kind of mad? Kind of irritated? Doesn't take very much to push them over the edge. They're always kind of cranky. This is what he's talking about. Anybody that has this settled anger in them, get rid of it. Why? Because we are supposed to be people like 1 Corinthians 13, 5 that says love is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. How's your scorecard? Anybody keep a scorecard in your head? I used to. It's wrong. And we're supposed to get rid of it like a snake on your shoulder or a poison-soaked shirt. Fast. Get rid of it. Well, 
What else? If you let this settled anger stay, then you get the second one, rage. And that's really the word for an explosive or a violent anger, like an exploding volcano. See, some of us stuff and stuff and stuff with a smile on our face till we just can't stuff no more. And all of a sudden, it's kaboom. My mom used to tell me that was me. You didn't know that about me in my younger days, but my mom used a word. I don't even know if it's a nice word. It, I don't think it's a bad word, but it's, it's called a hitzeblitz. It's a German word. And she says, what that means is you are unpredictably mad. Things that we wouldn't even have expected would make you mad blow you up. Everybody have any uh, tendencies to blow up under unexpected circumstances? I did. I really did. I mean, and I think it's because I used to stuff and stuff and stuff till I can stuff no more. Well, that means I had settled anger and I, it exploded in rage. God says, get rid of these things. Don't feed those cats. Get rid of them. Well, what else does ha I have to say? What happens when you do explode? Who do you tend to blame? They made me. They poked me. They, you know, I was doing great, but they came over and you know what they did? That's why I blew up. See, it's all their fault. It's our fault. We are the only ones responsible for the anger that's in us or how we express it. And God's saying right here, get rid of it. Toss it away. Well, the next two are malice, which really means malignant. When you hear malignant, what do you think of? Cancer, right? That means it's evil, it's sneaky, it spreads, it kills, it lies under the surface. You think all is well, but un in, underneath the skin, it's destroying you. It's to, it tends to rob us of love, of hope, of life, of joy. He says, don't have attitudes in you that are malicious, that seek the ill of others sneakily, you could smile at them while you're robbing them. <laughs> Trust me, I got your best interests at heart. Really? He says, believers, no place for that. This used to be part of your life. You used to know how to sell stuff, even when they didn't need it. Stop it. Do not behave in a way that hurts someone intentionally while you smile. Well, the next one is slander. And that's blasphemia, which is more than an irreverence towards God, but also to others. And this really means that we don't speak ill to hurt the reputation or the name of another. And I think a simple rule of thumb that I want to give you, it's helped me, and when I do it, I'm protected. When I don't do it, I end up in trouble. It's this. Whatever you're going to say that might involve another person Make sure it's kind and loving. It's truthful. And it's the same thing you would say if they were standing right next to you as you were in your group. I'm telling you, if they were right next to you, would you say the same thing you're saying when they're not there? Here's the problem. If we spoke that way, I think there's a whole lot less conversation happening. Don't you think? I mean, it's funny. When the person walks up while we're talking to somebody, oh, hi, there you are. 
Yeah, we're all talking good about you. No smack whatsoever. No, we cannot be people of slander. And the last one was filthy language. Wow. This is how we used to talk. Old habits of speech that were foul, obscene, and dirty. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So how do you control your mouth? Fill up your heart with good things. It's not just a muscle memory for the mouth. You must fill up the heart with Jesus, with his word. This changes what the mouth wants to talk about. It doesn't want to speak evil. See, a person, a believer, who listens to, laughs at, tells, off-color, foul, dirty jokes, is not just hurting themselves and sinning. It's a bad testimony for our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, can God save that person anyway? Absolutely. Do you think he's saving you because you're living perfectly? No. You're you're being saved because of Christ and Christ alone. Not because you're living it right. But does he want us to live it right? Yes, he does. And he's saying the key to doing this is putting things to death and getting rid of them. Not playing with them. Not feeding them. Not having a herd of cats follow you wherever you go because you just can't put them to death. No. We must because that's the key to God's victory. Now, the last thing here is the effect of our new wardrobe. As you see in verse 9 and 10, it says that we took off and put on. But I think there's some key thoughts that I want to address first. In verse 7, you all got to remember, no one is excluded from the club. It says, you all used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. Why would he say that? Why did he tell you? Why did he remind us of that? I think in this battle against sin, it's important to remember that your flesh has muscle memory. Whatever you've practiced, that's what you're likely to do without new input. And what happens now is the way you would have handled conflict, the way you would have addressed the opposite sex, the way you would have dressed truth, those all need to change with your new wardrobe. But you've been practicing it the other way so long, it's so easy to, if you don't think about it, if you don't put those things to death as soon as you see them, they'll still carry on. They'll plague you. They'll be a bother to you. God wants them to be gone. So remember, everyone in this room has this problem. Everyone. There was not one person in here that's not going to have this struggle and did not live a portion of their life without Christ. You're going to have to overcome fleshly muscle memory. But the second thing we must remember is the Son has set us free, right? According to John 8, 36. So whom the Son sets free is free indeed. What does that really mean? We sang the song. He came into our dungeon. He lit it up. He threw our chains off. He threw the door open. Now the next move is ours. It says in the song, I rose, I went, and followed thee. I think there are too many Christians today that have their chains laying on the floor, the doors wide open, but they're comfortable on the cot in their cell. They haven't changed a thing. That's not the life of a Christian. God says we must arise, leave the cell, take advantage of the victory Christ has purchased for you, get out of the cell, stop doing what you used to do, address it by putting it to death or getting rid of it. 
Don't deal with it casually. Sin is not casual. Sin is not casual. And when you die, here's the joy of this to me. When we focus on the word of God, we get our appetites renewed. We get our practices. So we put things to death. God does something. He changes our affections so dramatically that feeding us sin is like feeding us dirt. We don't want to eat anymore. Just take it away. It's not a matter of willpower. Oh, help me not do that. That's not what the Christian life is about. It's about power. It's about strength. It's about having new appetites. It's not about willpower. So many fail today because they're living Christian life on willpower. And that is not going to cut it. We need to follow God's instructions, do what God says, and guess what? He will change our appetites so dramatically that he cannot, Satan cannot, the world cannot, and your flesh cannot come back and try to serve you dirt. Now, does that mean they won't dress the dirt up and put some whipped cream on it? No. We'll still have a battle. But it will be a different kind of battle and a smaller battle. Well, lastly, I just want to say this. Verse 11 says that uh, God's work to rescue mankind knows no boundaries. I love this. The church of God, God's family who he's given forgiveness, a brand new heart, a change of nature is available to all and knows no racial, prior religious, cultural, financial, or social boundaries. All bigotry, all chauvinism, all exclusivism, all societal or intellectual snobbery have no place in the church of God and the family of Christ. No place. Why? Because we are all one in Christ. And by the way, did you know that because Christ is all things and in all things, Paul tells us that he has obliterated and removed all seemingly important, but not really important, distinctions of religious affiliations, prerogatives, intellectual claims, social castes, colors or races, because the kingdom of God is without boundary and whosoever will may come. Whosoever will may come. This is what Christ has done. This is what he wants us to remember. Why is this here? Because he says, if you live this way, this will be your experience. But if you let sin live in here, guess what this experience will look like? You'll have divisions in your church. Are there churches today with divisions? You bet there are. And why do you think that is? Because they haven't dealt with the problems before and put to death and got rid of the sin that God has told them about. As a result, there's chauvinism or there's racism or there's snobbery of who's got the most doctrine cut straight. Those things should be obliterated, gone because of Christ and what he's done in our life. I just want to close with a couple things. See, there's a, a, a concept called the mortification of the flesh that several centuries ago was really how it was discussed, how we should put to death our fleshly, evil, earthly nature. And it conjures up maybe thoughts to you well, how to put to death. Well, it really was kind of harsh treatment of the body. Well, maybe you should lay on a bed of nails. That'll help you. Or maybe be, show your penance by crawling through glass and that'll help you not sin again. 
or maybe it's beating our bodies. Perhaps you want to control sin. You want to tame sin. You want to do something like that. And so you say, well, no playing cards. They're a source of evil. Or television and movies. That's the problem. Ban those. Uh, or how about don't allow makeup for women. It makes them too attractive. Men can't handle that. Or how about wear long dresses because that's the solution. That's the solution. Then we won't lust. Are you kidding me? These have no effect, zero effect at controlling our earthly passions. We'll just find a way around them. See, what God says is we need to control these things at the source. We live in this time period between D-Day, when Christ conquered our souls, he gave us victory, ultimate victory is ours. We will never lose this war. We might lose a few skirmishes on the way, but we will not lose the war. The war has been won. Jesus has won it. Okay, when we get here, John Owen said this. There are three things that John Owen said that I really think we'll just close with. One, hatred of sin as sin, not only as galling or disquieting, but also as we sense the love of Christ on the cross, lie at the bottom of all true, true spiritual mortification. It's not only we must hate sin, we must love Christ. A lot of people hate sin, but they do it anyway. We must love Christ. The, the, the actual depths of sin's mortification comes through our affections of Christ. That's what Paul said in verse 1. We got to love Christ more than our sin. The second thing that John Owen said was, all other means of mortification are vain. All helps leave us helpless. It must be done by the Spirit of God alone. Not to be daily mortifying sin is to sin against the goodness, kindness, wisdom, and grace, and love of God who has furnished us with a way of doing it. He's given us a way to mortify sin. He's given us his tools. He's given us instructions. For us not to do it, it's to spit in his face and say, I just don't want to do what you want me to do. This is what John's saying. If we loved Christ, we want to do everything he told us. What, what was that secret again, Jesus? I'll do it. I'll do it. Lastly, I think, we need to remember. It says, do you mortify or do you make it your daily work? Because be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from his work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Do we see sin as a deadly enemy or just as a bad friend? Or just a pest? It's a mortal enemy. And today I would pray that we would not be lax or weary in our battle against the indwelling sin. It's never right to wear our old clothes on top of our new clothes. See, I think some beggars just get so attached to their old clothes, they get a new set of clothes and they put the old ones on top of it. They look like clowns. We, we deceive the world what Christ is about. When we wear our old clothes on top of our new clothes, what's the world think? We're not a testimony for Christ and his goodness. We're saying we're, we're nuts. We say we're Christians, but we live like everybody else. We can't do it. So I pray that you would give us a renewed mind and the power of the spirit of God and the ability to love him and have changed affections and new appetites this week, starting today. Do you know that sin is going to attack you when you leave this room? Maybe even right now before you get up off your chair. Sin is already whispering what you should be doing that you need to reject. You need to die. You need to put to death. Because if we do, our affections will change. Our habits will change. 
Our joys and delights will change, and no one can feed us dirt anymore. Father, I thank you for your word. Help us to take it seriously. Help us to put you in first place in our life. Let us never put sin on the throne of our life. Sin has lost its right to reign. It's forever been conquered. Don't let us put it there because it just wants to be. Help us to put it where you want it to be, which is dead. Thank you, Father, for the ability to combat this thing that we will deal with until you take us home and we won't deal with it anymore. Would you help every believer in this room follow these instructions? We don't want to be a church that we all have a herd of cats following us of sin everywhere we go because we're feeding them rather than getting rid of them. Let us be a devoted and dedicated group to the love and the affection and the adoration of our King Jesus, so much so that the world can never feed us dirt again. In Jesus' name, amen.